This podcast is brought to you by Rental House Productions. For the price you would typically pay to rent high-quality equipment, they'll provide an experienced team of professionals fully prepared to produce any visual media project to your specifications. They want to work in close correspondence with you to ensure that they deliver the desired vision for your video and successfully promote your message. Ready to take your outreach to the next level? Book a free consultation today at rentalhouseproductions.com. Check out the guests. We're about to bring in. We're good friends. We're connected on LinkedIn. No overthinking, just over drinking. No overthinking, just over drinking. Beers and beers, drink away your fears. Let's chit chat for 42 years. Let's hope things don't get too weird. Now it's time for beers and beers and beers. Today, we'll be drinking Lagunitas IPA, which comes in with a strong 88% rating on beeradvocate.com. Lagunitas is well-rounded, but can still pack a powerful flavor that exceeds expectations and always gets the job done. Just like our next guest, he's a writer, he's a director, he's a producer. He is Mr. Matthew Robinson. All right. Here we are. Matthew, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, so where where did you come from to to meet us all the way here in Calabasas? <laughs> well, I, I came from Valley Village, which is like a little hamlet in North Hollywood. If you sneeze, you'll miss it. Uh, originally, I'm from D.C., mm. and then I also moved to Cincinnati before coming out here to L.A., where I've now been for 12 years. Wow. 12 years. Yeah. Oh, man. Almost in a day. So. Okay, okay. So... So you grew up in D.C. until when? I was about nine years old when I moved out of D.C., and then I spent nine years as well in Cincinnati and then came out of here for college. Okay. Nice. So were you in, like, uh, D.C. proper? D.C. proper, yeah. Not vir- not uh, Virginia or Maryland. I was part of the DMV, but I was the D in the DMV. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I lived in a place called Downing Street by Rhode Island Station and nice. Montana Projects. We did not live in projects. Uh, we lived in this really nice little neighborhood right next door. Beautiful. And that's where I grew up. So what, uh, what like, quadrant of D.C. is? Because I knew they do, like, the north, northeast. northeast. Okay. Yeah, northeast. Northeast. We were northeast D.C., which if you go to, it's completely different than northeast D.C. I grew up with. Hmm. But it's there now. And it's uh, difference in the sense of... Gentrification. Yeah, it's very. GC is very gentrified. It's one of the most gentrified cities I've ever seen. Yeah, mm. yeah. I spent a s- semester there just through Pep, and uh, yeah, no, it, it was not a rigorous place for <laughs> us students. It's quite easy, quite easy. So, so DC. Um, w- is that to suggest maybe you come from like a, a line of politicians or anything like that, or <laughs> did you just kind of end up there? I wish I came from a line of politicians. Maybe actually, <laughs> maybe I don't. I, I do have some politicians in my family. My uncle is the commissioner of Fayette County in Georgia. Hmm. Oh wow! And but most of my family is in education, public service, health, administration. Hmm. Uh, a few members of my family did play professional sports or worked in professional hmm. sports, but mostly my family. He's a family of educators, so I'm kind of the black sheep. Even though I ended up working for Pepperdine mm. for many years, I was a sure. black sheep of like that being, I don't want to work in education. I want to do the arts. And uh, I'm still, I'm the black sheep out of many people. Even some of my former cousins in my generation, I'm kind of the black sheep. So, so what, what kind of drew you to the arts initially? 
being from such a, you know, not artistic centric family? Well, my family's always liked the arts. They just have not necessarily seen it as a viable career. Mm -hmm. But my parents were super into movies, theater, art. I lived in DC, so it was great. You could go to museums for free there. Mm -hmm. And my family would always take me to the museums. Like once a month, maybe even more, we would go to the National History Museum, the Smithsonian, the National Art Gallery, and go into these places that really foster the love of the arts in me. We'd go to the ballet and theater, opera. Mm. And my parents were big movie, are still big movie fans. Like my dad will like call me to say that he just watched this movie or my mom will. And... It, it's hilarious in some regards because my parents are so into it, but it's what helped me foster. My mom is, I tell this story a lot, but my mom is very, uh, she gets into movies a lot. She had to leave the room at one point during Transformers because huh. Optimus Prime was getting beat up, and she was like, I can't watch this. I can't watch Optimus, Optimus no. get hurt. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. She was like shy. She was like, Optimus. <laughs> and... Well, that's pretty good. That fosters like a an environment of like you know really like uh, giving yourself to like the arts, right? And like right. you know, kind of like letting that kind of be like a little haven, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, so my parents were never anti me going into the art career. Mm. I think one of the reasons I was so into it was this idea of creation. I actually wanted to be an archaeologist mm. for the longest time when I was growing up. There was a brief moment where I think every kid has where they want to be an astronaut. Sure. And that lasted for about six months and then I realized that in order to become an astronaut you had to be really good at math you had to be really good at a lot of things I knew even at a young age like at the age of like six I was not going to become good at <laughs> so that became uh it became the dream became I would become an archaeologist and then I would marry an astronaut ah and well, that, that's, she, that's, that's, that's practical that's yeah. much more practical yeah. much more realistic or that she was going to be an astrophysicist at the very least mm. and uh so we'll see uh pending <laughs> it can still happen so you're me. still on the market is <laughs> what you're trying to say I'm, ladies I'm still in the market maybe you could marry yeah an astronaut archaeologist and then you can have <laughs> all three there is astronaut astro uh, archaeology <laughs> yeah it's there gotta is, be right there is there yeah. is they do uh archaeology from space there's a whole book on it uh which i own and it's about archaeology from space, how they're able to look at ruins from space and see how big they are. Wow. And all that well, if, if there are any uh, uh, single ladies out there that are space archaeologists, uh, Matt did come <laughs> prepared rocking a NASA shirt today. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, so he is a perfect point. candidate. That is totally a coincidence, but <laughs> yes. <laughs> of course, yes. of course. It's just always on my mind. It's always <laughs> on my mind. Uh, but I wanted to be an archaeologist, and I wanted to write for National Geographic hmm. and Smithsonian Magazine. I even subscribed to, like, Sismoni Magazine had this uh, version of their magazine for kids called Dig Magazine. And I loved it. I was obsessed. I would read each issue cover to cover, mm. like, four times before the next month's issue came out. And... Uh, I still subscribe to Sasonian now. Now the adult version, the big boy version. Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, moving on up. <laughs> <laughs> moving on up. But eventually I got to the point when I realized I was starting to write these stories and write these books that people weren't really going to read like that kind of stuff like there was going to be a market for it always but not that more people were going to watch movies and tv shows mm. and so i switched from archaeology to tv and movies because i realized hey i want people to read my work so let me do a movie and i can always do a movie about archaeology sure. <laughs> and or something i discovered with archaeology 
and I don't have to, other people actually see it. And mm. that has continued even to this day with my films and plays. Almost all of them are historically based in some way, and I love the research part. Mm. So it always came from like an innate like just drive to write, yeah. like no matter what it was. No, no matter what, I would write yeah. articles, journalism, poetry, short stories. Mm. I had this composition book, and I would write. And I, by the end of like, there's like third grade. By the end of third grade, I'd filled up like three composition books worth of this very ripped off Star Wars story that I had. Uh. <laughs> there were no lightsabers, but there were like laser swords. You know, <laughs> it, you know, you know. It was like even at a young age, I was very aware of like intellectual property. It's like, well, I don't want to be sued. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like at the age of like eight, I was like worried about being sued by George Lucas. So I was like, well, let me just write this that it's almost Star Wars. Yeah. Pull back a little bit. We'll pull like, back a little bit. But they're <laughs> on an ice planet called like I forgot what it called. It was moth. Like, yeah, yeah, like moth or like Kaldar or something like that or something. You know, it's like something like Hoth-like planet. <laughs> in the description yeah right Hot, like planet. Yeah. it's like that scene in star wars when yeah so then uh jumping then from like from dc to la was that like a a school thing or were you making like a, an intentional like strategic move like this is where it's going to happen if it's going to happen or well yeah I, w- I went from dc or rather rather from uh from cincinnati, cincinnati. Yeah, yeah. Cincinnati. it was pretty conscious i was about to actually go to the university of toledo mm. I had Ooh, terrible sexy. grades. Yeah, terrible <laughs> grades when I graduated. I got serious about my grades way too late. Huh. Um, by senior year, I started to get serious about my grades. And I got my GPA up to a decent amount, but mm. not good enough to get into NYU or Columbia or USC, the schools I really wanted to get into. Sure. Because those were the schools that all film people went to. Mm-hmm. And so I got into the University of Toledo, and I saw the class schedule and realized I did not want to go to Toledo. And so I decided to go to Santa Monica College because it was the only college at the time that was in L.A. that would take me. Right. And so I went to Santa Monica College, and I was trying to get into Pepperdine, UCLA, and USC. And after about a year, I, I gave up trying to get into USC. I realized it just was not going to happen. Hmm. I wanted to get into a screenwriting program. Only 35 people get let into screenwriting. Oh, wow. I was just – I figured it's just not going to happen. And – so I got into UCLA and Pepperdine, chose Pepperdine. But I came out to L.A. because I really wanted, I really wanted to have this connection to the city, and I knew I had to be L.A. or New York. I knew that that was just realistic to get into film and TV, and that was it. It wasn't really, you know, if someone had told me that Raleigh, North Carolina is where I needed to go to get into film, that's where I would have gone. So sure. that was just pretty much the goal for it. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel that. I mean, I... Uh, I don't know. I can't speak for Steven, but I mean, it was definitely kind of along those lines myself in terms of like, you know, I, I was I was this close to going to like Emerson in Boston and like that would have like done the trick. But like there was always just kind of that draw to like, you know, this, this is where the creative people are at. You know, you, you got to be in the middle of it. And, uh, you know, you make up all these fantasies, of course, like, oh, like this could happen. That could happen. Just being just from being out here. Right. right. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, Pepperdine was I mean, it, it was a fine it was a fine school to end up at. I mean, and, and you were very involved. I mean, you were uh if we can get into a bit of the random show. Oh, yeah. yeah. We, were, uh, we were watching some of the reels today yeah. Yeah. from the random show. Oh, yeah. Random show. That was a great show to work on. Uh, I hope we can make a comeback at Pepperdine. I'm sure it It's will. been kind of on and off the last few years. But yeah. uh, random show was great. I worked on there from seasons 
14 to 17. I was a producer of the 17th season. Hmm. And, man, I was there at a really good time. It was, like, a really good renaissance random show. We had Jeff Loveness, Seth Allison, Kyle Health. Oh, Grant it was Harley. stacked. So like, we're, yeah. we're, we're one of those folks, the one that did the, the DPS uh, yes, song? Yes, that was Seth Allison and Kyle Health. Oh, yeah, a hit. A hit. A hit. It was just huge. I mean, I worked for public safety for a year after graduating, and people would, like, bump that song. <laughs> they would bump the DPS D- song. P- I did it. I would get in my uh, truck or whatever to like do delineations or close up <laughs> stuff, and I would like crank. The DPS. <laughs> you know, it's like eleven o'clock at night. There's no students around because it's pepper and no one's out. Yeah. You just crank DPS. <laughs> and I remember we got a memo saying that we were allowed to listen to the song, but we, we were not a, because of the subject material of the song. Don't make it public that you're listening to DPS. <laughs> I think I broke that rule once. This group of people came on campus who I recognized. I knew they knew the random show, and so when it came on, I had a little iPod that played music like an iHome. And I was cranking DPS, and they started like singing along. <laughs> and everything. But uh, you know, <laughs> when, you're, when you're 23, you're, you feel like you're invincible from getting fired. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. of course. Yeah, uh, Paul, have you been fired thus far? Have I been fired? No, I've, I've like left like jobs like pretty not abruptly. I mean, I give them the two weeks, but like pretty much with no warning and for you know but but like i, I haven't been fired so no. i guess we're invincible from being fired yeah I, right now you're invincible to this day yeah i mean like a, i haven't been fired yet well, <laughs> you know years. i didn't get fired from pepperdine i mean not to get off topic oh sure yeah i, yeah, I didn't yeah. get fired from pepperdine but i i got laid off which was uh it's like mm. selective firing uh, yeah. you call. Mm-hmm. it's like we can't fire you you haven't done anything wrong in your job and you haven't done anything that like merits firing but we also don't feel like you should be promoted so yeah, <laughs> let's just lay hell? you off they just like eliminate my position so, so. and th- there was uh what was the official name of your position media facilities manager media right. facilities manager yeah. so so matt uh helped paul and i and all our fellow media production people with just about anything that we might have needed well, uh, it was like matt was the guy that made stuff happen right like, he needed something right. to work out or like you know whether it was an equipment thing or whether it was you know okay is this room open you know you, you you, I would always know who do people who to direct people to at least. They're like, "Well, I have this problem." It's like, "Well, I'm I, not I know who knows it. how to do that." <laughs> <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, that was that was basically my job. Yeah, that was basically my job for like six years. Which is, <laughs> I mean, we need that. I mean, that's a, you, you facilitated like so many like projects and like you know people that are trying to fuel their own creative energies. Like, you made that happen for so many people, and so I hope that that doesn't go overlooked at least in terms of like how you know things yeah, shut down I, or whatever. I would hope so. I mean, I have no bitter towards the Pepperdine thing. I, sure. I It was actually something I was very happy to get mm. when they were telling me I was getting laid off. I was actually, I think I was smiling <laughs> when it happened because I was like, oh, great. <laughs> you know, it got to that point. I've been at Pepperdine for so long. I've been in, pretty much have been at Pepperdine as long as I've been out here because mm. when I got to uh, L.A., I lived with my aunt, who was the head coach of women's basketball, and she lived oh, wow. on Pepperdine's campus. Really? So for like 12 years, basically, almost 12 years, I've been associated with Pepperdine, mm. like on an almost daily, I was like in the CCB building almost every day for 10 years, you know? <laughs> it's just like after a while, you kind of like, are like, okay, I'm, okay, yeah. I'm ready. So, so now you're out. Yeah. Is it, well, Paul and I can kind of identify with that a little bit. Is for it kind a few of like months, a, at least. A breath of, yeah. I don't want to say fresh air to say that the air at Pepperdine is not fresh, <laughs> but no, they're right on the coast. Air. Come on, it's beautiful. What's it's a beautiful, it's beautiful campus. Beautiful. I mean, metaphorical yeah. fresh air. Yeah. Well, I definitely don't miss the commute. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I definitely miss some things. Like, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, how the random show's going. That was, like I said, that was a big part of my college career. That's where I made many of my friends. Sure. 
one thing on that, not to tangent off of it, but like the one thing Go about the random it. show that was so great was that the random show, it was okay for you to fail. It was okay for you to make a short that wasn't funny, that wasn't good. Yeah. And my biggest criticism with the new Pepperdine model is that failure is not an option. That There's no choice for people to experiment and have fun. Everything has to be a project for class or for a co-curricular that they're not really fostering, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in my opinion. And yeah. so it's like, you know, I would gotten to UCLA and Pepperdine. And the reason I chose Pepperdine over UCLA was because at UCLA, I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to pick up a camera in UCLA until I was a sophomore, junior. Oh, I you know, see. Maybe wow. a little sooner if I was lucky, but I wasn't going to be in charge of anything. I wasn't going to be able to make my own stuff. Yeah. When I went to Pepperdine, week one, I was signed up to work on three shows, Man yep. Waves, uh, Random Show, and I was helping out Newswaves with like some of their stuff. Yeah. Which ended up being something I ended up doing even after I graduated, particularly with Newswaves and GMM. Good morning, Malibu. Right. So for the money that Pepperdine cost, I would never go to the, you know, for the money. You know? Yeah. I mean, being honest, I mean, what are they going to fire me? I guess. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's like, for, to be honest, I don't mean this even as a trash or a dig. I think there's a lot of people, things are doing right with the division. For sure. Yeah. But I was very vocal in the sense that why would I go someplace where I'm not going to get, like, we don't have the best equipment, Pepperdine. We don't have the best facilities. But the, the divider, the thing that made us different was that I could do a random show yeah. and we would have a premiere or I could do a Good Morning Malibu or News Waves and I would get so much like, you know, like encouragement. Work. Yeah, yeah. Encouragement. It was hands on, hands on experience, which yeah. is the biggest thing. Right. Um, and but, we, we've said it a, no, a number of times on here. This show isn't about us, but I can attest to that because the, the same. I had a very, very, very similar experience where, like, I showed up that first few weeks, and there was that meeting, and you, and you go and you can sign up for all kinds of things, and people pitch stuff, and you, if, if it's interesting, then you go and you do it, and like. I found myself like two weeks in, like Malibu tonight. That was that was like kind of we ran with that for a while, and right. it was kind of that same like, which ended up being like, I don't know, I don't know if it, it led to a change, but like it was kind of, <laughs> we were doing it guerrilla style kind of, and like but but regardless, like I was writing every week, I was writing a bunch of sketches a week, and that was like I just kind of fell into it, and that was what was super appealing about it, and 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 now like you mentioned, it's almost a, it's it's more regimented, and like I get that that's like. It's neat. In, in, in the long ways. run, like they'll probably end up with like some cleaner projects and stuff, sure. But like at the same time, you're still dealing with these kids that like don't necessarily know what they're doing. Yeah. You've got to practice and figure that out. And there, there's like a thread of, I guess, just like the ideas are so like grandiose that sometimes it's just like unrealistic, right. to pull off, especially if you don't have experience actually yeah. doing it. So I mean, it's kind of like shooting themselves in the foot in a sense right but let's um keep on just talking crap about pepper no, <laughs> no, no, no i mean no, hey you know again, what i'm not i'm not bashing no, them right no I, I have disagreements with them which which probably contributed to me being laid off i think sure. they wanted people who were going to be 100 percent with their vision yeah and i didn't fit that yeah and so you know no, yeah, you but, get but that anywhere. I mean, you know, it can happen anywhere. It's tough because, you know, you want to be honest with how you really feel right. about how things are going. And well, it's, like, it, it's, like, it's like being critical is you caring about right. the condition of the program. Yeah. But if they just want yes people, then I guess that's what they'll get. Yeah, I mean, they it's they definitely didn't want 
and they definitely didn't want conflict from their staff. They definitely wanted me to be seen and not heard, kind uh. of thing, you know. And so that's I was part of it was I was really young, comparatively. I was like the youngest person working in that mm-hmm. department yeah, that wasn't sure. like a student. Yeah. So I think that played into it a little bit. I think just people just there was that inherent, not disrespect, but just an inherent lack of confidence. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so that was hard to get by. But, you know, it, I broke it down, and I'll, I won't talk much about the Pepper Nine after that, but like this, but I'll break it down like this. One of the reasons Random Show was so good during this renaissance is that, yes, there were still regulations and rules, but a lot of it let people succeed. For every uh, Wes Anderson Spider-Man that was made by oh, Jeff Loveness. unbelievable, you know, yeah, yeah. That got Hilarious. him like a job on Kimmel and eventually led to him writing comics for Marvel and DC yeah, and Image. Yeah. For every one of that, there was also sketches that weren't so great. You right. Know, like, I had a sketch that I worked on, and uh, that was called the Chicken Sketch. It was just slapped together. <laughs> but people liked it, but it was it was terrible. It was artistically terrible. But, you know, like, people look at Newsways, Pepperdine's and Newsways, which there's probably some people on this podcast who have no idea what this is. Uh, Pepperdine Newsways is a live at 5 o'clock broadcast that the students do. It's real news. Malibu does not have a news station. Neither does Calabasas. This focuses on news in that area. Yeah. And people really watch and pay attention. Like, and, these peop- and a lot of the people who work on Newsways end up getting really good jobs yeah. in the industry right out of college, some even before they've graduated. But the reason that does so well is because the students, even though there's a, there's a structure and there is protocol and there is all this stuff, they are allowed to fail on their own merit and they're allowed to experiment and they run their own stuff. It's not a short film that's trying to get into a festival. It's not something that has to be polished. It is something that has to be done now and in a hurry, which is something I think the Random Show shows like that why it's important. Because Random Show, you had a month. You had a month to make something and then had a premiere. You were going to have a premiere in Elkins or PLC and you just had to have it done. And you were going to have to cut corners and get creative and inventive. Mm -hmm. And now everything's for a grade. And I, I just don't agree with that philosophy. It, it goes against why I joined Pepperdine and why I, I cared so much about the students, which I'm sure Pepperdine did not like hearing from me. So, <laughs> but almost again, it goes against like being a creator in the first place. It's like you've got to be able to fail, and that's almost where you learn the most. And, and that goes with anything. I mean, if you're able to fail, then you can, you know, you learn from your mistakes. But uh, when it comes to, to shooting things and like being on sets and like, or, or Newswaves is a different story where it's in you know a multicam format and stuff like that. But like being on a set and like being able to screw around and if, if you make a mistake it's okay and you, you learn how to even uh, adjust for that mistake like th- those are really important things that if you're thrown into this like really big ambitious project like there isn't that leeway in the first place and then you know if it's it's built up to be this like big thing whether it's for a grade which is so important or whether it's for you know you're shooting for a festival it's like you'll get to that place like organically if you're just able to you know work it out and, 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 you know, find your strengths and, exactly. you know, ma- make, make things that are important to you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think just like having the conception in your head that like the project that you're working on, like right here and now is going to be this like huge thing that's going to like send you off into just like the <laughs> yeah. atmosphere. It's like, that's not realistic. It's right. like you're building just like, you know, uh, portfolio is something that you can improve upon. I guarantee you will make a better product and you will learn more about the process of filmmaking, whether it's pre-production, production, or post-production. If you are in trying to make your hundred f- people at Pepperdine or your school or whatever laugh, yeah. rather than get into a film festival. 
it's just the best stuff has always come out of like, let's just make something because I want to make it. And then maybe it turns out really well. Everything that I've seen where people are trying really hard to get into a film festival, really hard to win, almost universally never does well. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just like having that that freedom to, you know, I mean, just like run with your passion. Because when when you're already like conceptualizing what you think other people are going to think about what you're making, then, you know, you, you're already like doing it wrong. Right, <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. It's true. I have made that mistake quite a few times, particularly in my college years. And it was something I just had to get over. And it's something I tell people all the time, directors, writers, producers. It's like, you can't worry about people liking your stuff. You Mm. just have to make it. And if they like it, they like it. And if they don't, they don't. But if you are you and they're genuine and you try, you put effort into it. Yeah. Usually it will turn out pretty okay. Right. And it's almost irrelevant whether or not like people like it if you're doing it for their, I don't know, not to be, too, I don't want to sound pompous or anything, but like, if you're doing it like, like because you love to do it and because it's something that you really care about or if it's a project, whether it's a concept or something that you really want to see like, you know, made uh, to be as best as it can be, then like you said, like in theory, I mean, if people like it, then or if it's supposed to be liked, then they'll, they'll like it, you know? Right. It's like, it, it's got to come from that like internal place of like, you know, this is something that matters to me, so I'm going to make it no matter what. Right. You know? Everyone wants their stuff to be liked. Right. You know, I, I think there's any director who says, I don't care if people like this, isn't necessarily being truthful. But what you have to get to the point is you have to not care if people don't like it. Yeah, yeah. You know? I've done some plays and some movies, and some of the plays for the Hollywood Fringe, people can just write reviews. And I one time had a person write a negative review about a play I did called Blackballed, which takes place in the 19... 19- Primarily in the 1940s and 50s, someone hated the. Someone wrote a really bad review because they said I was completely unimmersed the moment I saw a phone on stage that didn't become popular until the 1950s, taking place in the 1940s, where the okay. play mainly begins. Come on, All and it's right. like, what are you gonna do? What are you? Gonna, and you know, it's a play. You can't switch. It's not a movie. You can't switch out the phones. Like, yeah. you know, you have a limited budget. Yeah. I'm paying out of pocket for these things. Right. But that was like something that, and you just have to be like, I don't care. You know, I don't. I don't care that you don't like it. I'm going to take your reviews, <laughs> right. and maybe I'll make something better. There's sure. some reviews that come in that are critical, and you're like, hey, you know what? I could do this better. Yeah. But you have to get to the point where it does, it's not personal. Yeah. Where it's well, very like, okay. It's, it's a fine line because you can't, you can't take you know, all criticism to heart, but at the same time, you want to internalize it so you can get better. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, you have to like, not make it personal. Like, I get people my scripts... And I'm like, you can spit on this script yeah. for all I care. And, you know, it's tell me what you like and mm. whatever I agree with. Like, <laughs> you're like, hey, I like this or I hate this. You need to change this or work on this. Cool. And anything you say that I disagree with, positive or negative, I'm not going to listen to anyway. I'm going to disregard. <laughs> so, you know, what's the point? Like, don't hold back. Yeah. You know? well, <laughs> what's, what's the point of, you know, asking for notes on a script? Like, if you have a first draft of a script and someone's like, it's perfect you did it it's like what were you doing right like obviously it's not where it needs to be it's the first draft no first draft right is good (laughs) right now if you get to the draft you're like this is my shooting script and people are like i don't really have any notes like everything's working for me cool you know at that point they're like hey you know maybe there's some things but for the most part i'm enjoying it cool but when it's your when it's your early drafts man you you don't do yourself any favors by letting people like pull their punches now obviously you don't want people I say this, some people think that now they can say, like, 
you're like absolute crap and your work is crap and you never amount to anything. Like, no, no one <laughs> wants you to be mean or a jerk. <laughs> Give me constructive criticism. But a lot of people take even criticism of their work very personally, even if it's completely unpersonal. It's just how people react. And I get it. Writers and actors and performers can be sensitive to those things. But yeah. you have to get over it mm-hmm. to yeah. be successful. Yeah, well, people just pour like so much of themselves like into scripts so it's like the protagonist that they're writing is like them right yeah <laughs> and it's like well, it gets too personal at yeah, that point yeah. it's like this is a story man <laughs> you know you're <laughs> writing a story regardless of how much it ties to you yeah but that's that's the beauty of taking notes and i think that you've you know that that's a very uh uh reasonable and and uh very serving uh, take that that you've given on that where, you know, if you're able to kind of process that and and take things in stride and and take that constructive criticism and and still help that, it's with the mindset that it's all serving the project and it's all serving the piece regardless of whether you agree with it or not. Like, when it comes down to it, it's like, as the writer, you know what needs to be accomplished. Maybe it's not there yet, you know, if you haven't gotten there yet and you know that and that's why you're looking for notes, right? Right. And so... Yeah, I, I think that that's, that's a really healthy way to, <laughs> to kind of process that stuff. Um, and so, like, in, in terms of, like, being a writer, so you've written, you've written uh, sketches and, and short films and you've written plays. Um, did you kind of begin, we, we dabbled a little bit in, like, where the, your writing began, but, like, when it came to, like, writing for entertainment, um, did that kind of begin with, like, uh, theater in mind? Or was that kind of more film-oriented or, like, like, wh- where do you kind of lie where in, in that spectrum, whether it's like if, if it's going to be either theater or film? You know, it's always been film and television when I first started off. Mm-hmm. I used in high school, I used to write these things called The Adventures of Matthew Robinson. Nice. <laughs> Every page was a new episode. Wonderful. And by the time it was over, I started writing in eighth grade and I ended The Adventures of Matthew Robinson my sophomore year of high school. I need a reboot. Was, right, I need a reboot. <laughs> by the time I ended it, was, it was over a thousand episodes. Nice. Oh, so my goodness. Over, wow. Well wow. over, because some episodes were double-sided. And some so episodes plenty were of practice. Like, so plenty of practice. Plenty Good. of practice. Probably near 2,000 pages of just comedy. And it was built like a TV show or a serial. Mm. Like and a sitcom was, type? Like. Sick, it, was a, it was a very, it was very sitcom. And every, I did these things called sagas with the Adventures of Happy Robinson. Okay. Where it was each, because episodes were so short, there was like overarching stories. Sure. And each one was called, those were called sagas. And <laughs> kind of like, I guess, Dragon Ball Z. But some sagas were more comedic mm-hmm. or sitcom-y. Some were more slapstick and over the top. <laughs> and some even like gotten like this action comedy genre. I did even mm. did one that was like a horror style. Oh, nice. So it was like, a, it was a way to keep all the same characters but to completely put them in different genres and settings. And there was like, there were obviously inside jokes. Like there was like so many episodes that or sagas that started either in Taco Bell or <laughs> like uh, this character named Blake, who was based on my friend, uh, Blake Feldhaus, who it was like, it starts in Blake's apartment. So there was even like a joke at one point we did like, I did this trivia episode where I was like quizzing people on like how many like which where we started more sagas in Blake's apartment or Taco <laughs> Bell? The answer ended up being Taco Bell. I don't know why. I just chose Taco Bell. It's like where should this ep- saga take? Sorry, Taco Bell. And it's, a, it's a great establishment. It's a great yeah. great well, establishment. It's fine we frequent. Uh, yeah, we frequent cuisine. Taco We're Bell. We're supporters. Yeah. It was a lot of fun because my friends and I was making fun of stuff that was happening to us in high school and yeah. pop culture. There was one saga called that everyone still like see people still remember called the Super Bowl saga 
where they were all trying to get tickets for the Super Bowl. And I ended up making fun of this dance troupe that came to visit uh, Wyoming High School. And they were just really goofy. And it was like, we were too old for this dance troupe. <laughs> like, God bless them. They were doing their best. But yeah, they yeah. just weren't for us. <laughs> And so I made fun of them that we had to do the dance mm. troupe to get the tickets. <laughs> and that that was the reason that this the, old, these people came. They oh were like, but we're high schoolers are too old for us, we said at one point. Like, they're too old to, like, mm. see us do this routine. It's like, that's the point. We humiliate you for the tickets. If this was easy, <laughs> everyone would do it, and everyone would go to the Super Bowl. <laughs> so, and just people thought it was hilarious. I would, I would come in the morning, so I would write them the night before or during class when no one was watching Uh-oh. and I'd write them I know my <laughs> math grades suffered because of that but I would write the episodes and then at the beginning of the school day I would hand it out to a couple of people and they would pass it along oh nice and by the end of the day or the next day I would get the episodes back and by that time it had passed through like 20 to 30 hands of students who were just sneaking this in between classes or in class or during mm. a t- lunch. You know, like in lunch, I would look over and people would have the episodes and they'd be passing them along the cafeteria. <laughs> and like I would get a bag of the big spaghetti stains on it because people have been reading it. Yeah, and it's like, like each sp- spaghetti stain is a view. Like, right. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's how you. Uh, that's, that's the how red you ink. Keep it. That's the red ink. Got nine views today. <laughs> um, <laughs> Every droplet. <laughs> it was very popular in a microcosm t- sort of way, of mm, course. Yeah. We eventually, the first feature film. That I made, which I wrote the script for with the help of my friends, which was The Adventures of Matthew Robinson, the movie, which is on Vimeo. No, I believe. So a feature. Yeah, two features based off The Adventures of Matthew Robinson. Wow. One was 64 minutes and the other one was about 90 minutes. What? And Damn. it was made, shot on mini DV cam. Oh, totally, nice, dude. Totally cardboard, you know. Oh, my God. Total low budget stuff. But it if you serves wanna, the, the if form <laughs> serves the, 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 the vision, yeah, man. That's yeah. that's perfect. So if you if you want to see it, I, I don't oh know. Oh, my goodness. There's a bunch. There's a bunch. Yeah. <laughs> at one point, in, when I uploaded it originally to YouTube, it was when you could only upload 10 minutes at a time. So it was broken up in like seven episodes. This is awesome. Oh, but on um, Vimeo, I think it's the full. You can just watch the full, like nonstop from beginning to end. So you can see my early... You can see my early film. I, I did, made it my senior year of high school. Wow. Look and at this. Oh, this man. is great. Oh, there he is. <laughs> oh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, The Adventures of Matthew Robinson, the movie. Check we'll, it out on Vimeo. We'll, we'll put a link in the bio. That's we will. We do. It's yeah. an hour and two minutes long. Oh, my God. Let's long. go, dude. Wow. It was. Uh, oh, my oh, goodness. I know what we're doing tonight. Dude, look at these shots, too. It's well done. <laughs> it's Of course it is. I mean, I'm not surprised, but. I was usually the cameraman, and like wow. other scenes were put on a tripod, and I would just stand there, and then we would do the scenes. Because, you know, we couldn't do it. We only had one camera, so you couldn't yeah. do all these crazy angles. So wow. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. We had a premiere at my high school auditorium. Oh at, my during goodness. the summer, I was able to get the high school uh, auditorium. Oh, man. And so we had this big premiere. <laughs> we had a red carpet event. Oh, my oh, we had yes. Were you stunting? Were you stunting? I was stunting. I was oh, in a white tuxedo. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wait, what, what, just for my mental image, what year was this? This is 2007. Oh, so the the suit was baggy. It was a baggy year. Oh, yeah, suit. it was a little baggy suit. Oh, I love it. For them. sure. I love it. For sure. I'm pretty sure that, that picture's on my Facebook profile somewhere. <laughs> that is I awesome. I like post this on Instagram now so people oh, my can gosh. Uh, like, see it. <laughs> Maybe it'll be my throwback Thursday. That movie is now 12 years old, which is wow. weird to wow. think about. Uh, I did, when it was 10 years old, I reposted it. One of my friends, Jesse Holtis, who was in the movie, and was actually in a couple of my short films in high school, he's a teacher, and his students found the film, and they started printing out memes from the film 
around his high school that he taught at because they were like our teachers in this movie we just discovered and we're totally going to like put this everywhere uh jesse was uh his family was from nebraska and they had a bar in his house so there was this bar with all this nebraska insignia all over the place and so one of my short films was a film noir and so I made the scene take place in this bar. In Nebraska. In Nebraska. <laughs> which, made, which made no sense. There was just so much Nebraska stuff. I was yeah, like, okay, yeah. maybe Detective Rendezvous has left New York. <laughs> the set is dressed. Detective Rendezvous? <laughs> Detective Rendezvous. That is so <laughs> Detective badass. Rendezvous. Mm. Detective Rendezvous. That is badass. And Detective Matthew Robinson. Talking about self-insert. <laughs> I made myself like a cool neo-noir. Detective Matthew Robinson. Right. Yes. Detective Ron- <laughs> like, well, Robinson, Rendezvous. Uh, and of nice. course, I had a whole series called The Adventure After Robinson. And so since then, I have like, after that, I've like, I've tried to limit the time I self-insert myself as a protagonist. I actually usually self-insert myself as an antagonist now, which okay. is fun. Okay. Because I can delve into like why I hate. But yeah, that was my first foray into writing that's, creatively. That's super cool. Yeah, but I get. See, I like. I think we're like similar in. I don't know. It it, it takes like some sort of. I guess, like, fascination with, like, self to, like, insert yourself or, like, think about yourself in, like, an entertaining way that, like, could be entertaining for other people. Right. But but it can be tough to, when you're considering, like, how other people will interpret it, you know? Right. Like, there's a fine line between, you know... Uh, putting yourself out there and like over self promotion <laughs> yes, was that something definitely. you had to consider? Oh yeah, I mean the big equalizer with something like the Adventure of Matthew Robinson, for example, was that my character was an idiot right. and he yeah. was like the worst. He was like the worst version of myself, mm, right. like a Sunny approach. Yeah, yeah like yeah, a very yeah, Sunny in Philadelphia. Actually, go. very even though Sunny in Philadelphia hadn't come out yet. No, yeah, no, I'm just very saying, like, yeah. Sunny in Philadelphia. I actually yeah. was inspired a lot by Malcolm in the Middle. Oh, oh my gosh. Which Amazing. is like a family Amazing. where, you know, everyone, they're just like in the worst horrible. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, you know, it's just. And so Matthew, I like, was fun about the Matthew, Adventure of Matthew Robinson was that every character from episode to episode, their intelligence would fluctuate to mm. serve the story. Yeah. The movie, it's a little bit more consistent because it was one story. Yeah. And even back then I was thinking, well, people who don't know the Adventure of Matthew Robinson have to be able to come in and not be confused. So Matthew Robinson is not a complete idiot in this. Right. He's just not super smart. I think the plot, I haven't watched this movie in like four years, but I think the plot was, um, I watched, no, two years, because I watched it during his 10-year anniversary because I wanted to see all my <laughs> friends when they were younger. Well, we're going to watch it tonight. It's so. like a time capsule, right? <laughs> it's like a time capsule. <laughs> and um, I watched it and... The plot, I'm pretty sure, was our friend Clayton, who everyone, he was just a friend that everyone liked in my high school. He was 160 in our graduating class, so everyone knew everyone. Sure. And he gets kidnapped by this gang called the Tangerines that wear orange <laughs> because, like, Crips, Bloods, yeah. Tangerines. I thought it was super clever. <laughs> and they, they kidnap him, and then the whole movie is us getting ready for this fight against the Tangerines to get him back. No adults are involved. There's nothing to happen. And Why would there be? Right, yeah. right. And there's a scene at one point where we're, like, talking about this. We break the fourth wall a lot. And at one point we say, like, oh, man, we don't have a really a big budget to, like, do this fight scene. Like, what's this movie going to be like? He's like, well, you know, as long as we keep everything consistent, 
it's going to be a really good indie film because that's like the <laughs> biggest thing. And it's like, like you ever watch an indie film and like people are wearing different clothes in the same scene or like the set moves around and we're like, yeah, that's the worst. And we start doing that. It's like everyone starts, like characters are starting to wear like different, wildly different clothes. They have like a cowboy hat. And then at one point, like we start changing actors playing some of the characters. Like, yeah, man, like blah, blah, blah. And it goes back. Well, it's, that, that's where the, like, that's a perfect like utilization of that fourth wall. It's like, the, you know what this is. Like right, the audience yeah. knows what this right, is. Right, you know what happens. At that point, you're just like trolling. Yeah. Right, and we knew we were like, fantastic. We knew we were gonna make mistakes. So we're like, now people won't know if the mistake was intentional, right. or not. So it's like we just get it all out of the way right now. Oh. Honestly, <laughs> really brilliant, brilliant. Because there's like myself, even like I think I can be too like hypercritical. It's like when when you like uh, consider yourself as like some sort of like auteur or like, you know, you can just like give too much clout to yourself. Like yeah. you're going to do something incredible with this project. Then you're uh, subtly becoming the, the douche you swore to destroy. <laughs> you know, every project I thought that was going to be great has been not necessarily bad, but just like not receives largely and every product I was just like let me just see what happens has mm. like been like wow this is so great the I'm best like, oh, thing right really yeah you know it's which is you know I know this is kind of going back to your original question which is why I ended up going to doing theater I mm. was doing film and television and I still do film and television I mean, my ultimate goal is to do film I want to have a career in film where I'm one of those directors that has a movie project every two to three years that right. they're working on but one thing I found out that was very hard to swallow was that most people did not want to watch your 10-minute short film. Right. And they just weren't going to watch it. I was at an event to support a friend. By the way, let me just say this right now. My biggest advice to anyone, whether you want to be in dance, the arts, uh, film, television, theater, whatever. You're an actor behind the camera. It doesn't matter. You have to go and support other people's stuff. Oh, yeah. It is the biggest thing. Going to the film festivals, mm -hmm. their plays, their music recital, their gallery opening. Obviously, you can't make it all. But if you try to make as many as possible, I'm telling you, you're going to see your career start to really pick up. Mm. And I don't do that in a manipulative way. I don't do it to get favors out of people. You just have to do it just to do it. Yep. And there's also this uh, quote that I, I didn't quite understand until a little after I graduated college. And it's like, if you want to be seen, you have to be seen. You have to go to things for people to realize that you are a person in this industry. Mm -hmm. uh, Carrie Washington famously raised her stock as an actor by just showing up to all these like red carpet events and parties. Mm. And people eventually, people just see you so much, they're like, hey, let's put, let's yeah. put Carrie in something. They let's start put, thinking let's of put you. Let's put Paul in something. You know, it's, yeah. They start thinking about you yeah. so much more. And I go, because, I go to plays generally because I want to support my friends and you also never know when you're going to go to a play and see an actor in a performance and be like that actor yeah I need mm -hmm. to call them in to audition yeah. for this role so there's that uh, aspect to it but I started to do theater because I went to the symposium and I helped this guy park huh. and he was about to park in the wrong section and I told him where to park and I helped him parking at the parallel park he's like hey thanks man I'm like cool and I, I was like I had to go to this event so I rushed into the symposium and then he shows up at the symposium we we're both in the same event and I start talking to him afterwards. He's like, hey, thanks for helping me park. He's like, hey, I used to write for Married with Children. And now I do wow. theater. 
And he started telling me about theater. He told me about the Hollywood Fringe Festival. Mm. And I was like, what's that? And he's like, well, it's this festival they held in the summer in Hollywood in Theater Row. And you can put on a play. And I told him, I sent him one of my scripts. And he said, this would make a great play. And so I was like, okay, let me modify this to become a... Or I sent him, I didn't send him a script. I sent him an idea for a script that I was going to make into a movie. And he's like, why don't you make it into a play? This all takes place in one location because I want it to be low budget. It's like, well, it's all on location, four characters, make it a play. It's like, mm. you know, I'm going to make it a play. So I made it a play. It was called Politically Challenged. It was my first play I ever wrote and directed. It was one of those plays that I was really hoping would be like a hit. It was in 2016 in the summer. And it was about people not being able to compromise on a candidate because of one thing. Mm. And the play was well received. We weren't, we were nobodies in the LA theater community at the time when I started with me and my produ- producing partner, Robbie DeVillas. This was what year? This was 2016, summer okay, 2016. So a while ago, yeah. Yeah, a while ago. Good, yeah. And it, people just didn't know who we were. Mm. But it got good reviews. So that kind of built us a reputation. And then I did a play called Mary's Medicine the next year at the Fringe. And that was better received, better attendance, and it was the first time I ever won an award. I won the Encore Award with that play. I worked with a very talented Amy Argyle and a lot of other people who I still work with, like Tuan Pope, uh, Emily Martz. And so it was really, really fun to do. And then I decided, I knew that after that point, I started to get really like, okay, I need to start really playing this out with my theater because people are liking what I'm putting out there. So I need to like get to the point where people are going to look forward to mm. what I'm making. I need to brand myself. Because at the time, I was like, I'm a filmmaker who does plays on the side. Sure. And I started to shift to, like, I'm a writer, and I do film, and I do theater, and all of it's good. And that's like what I wanted to brand myself as. That's a so, good move. I mean, that's, I yeah. mean well, I feel like uh, I, it kind of ties back into the same question. But, like, I guess, like, where do you, where do you find that, like, that the inspiration like where, where does the process differ at all between like whether you're you're writing for the stage or writing for the camera oh and yeah like, yeah yeah how so well i mean you know when you're doing film when you're writing you can you can pretty much write anything even if it's a low budget you can write a different location when it's theater you live and down that the acting and the dialogue mm-hmm. you know a film you can have some more distractions and bright lights so to speak to kind of put pull everything together yeah in stage, if your characters aren't interesting, if your dialogue isn't engaging, yeah. people aren't going to like your play. Yeah. So you you don't have as many tricks you can pull in sure. stage. I definitely, I think, I, it's about even to be honest. But if if you held a gun to my head, I would say I would probably I would probably like writing for film a, a little bit more, only because I, there's there's less restrictions. Sure, it affords more possibilities. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But I would say I. I find it very. I find it more rewarding in some ways to do theater, hmm. because if a scene is good in theater, you know, and you get that instant gratification. People yeah. applaud, people laugh, and you just get to feel it in the moment. Mm. And so, I mean, I love them both. I want to do both for the rest of my life, you know. So it's not something that I'm like. I don't feel like there's two people. I feel like it's just. I write, and some stories are better for the stage, and right. some stories are better for film, and I write each one accordingly. Mm. And hopefully people come to go see it. Do you, do you feel, like, more of a freedom with um, writing for the stage to 
I guess just elaborate more in the okay. dialogue. Mm. Like Definitely. develop characters and stuff. Definitely. Film, no one's going to sit there. I mean, Quentin Tarantino gets away with it, but most mm. people can't get away with a bunch of dialogue. Of, like an eight-minute scene where people are just in one room talking. Right. Like you can't. Yeah. At that point, it starts to become an experimental film yeah. rather than a, a cinematic yeah, people film. People like yeah. to see shit happen. Right, they do. It's And it's almost like you. It's almost like with theater. Uh, I've only had so much so much experience being both involved and like you know just as a viewer. But like, it's almost like you know what to expect more from theater. And so whether or not that's met, um, is is uh, like whereas with the film, it's like anything could happen. Right. But with theater, it's like you know, like if the characters aren't gripping, if it, you know, if it's not like really hitting you, like right in the chest, like whether it's funny or whether it's you know supposed to be dramatic or, or you right. know. Um, I mean, you'll know very quickly with a theater show. You'll have your preview night or your opening night, and mm-hmm. you'll know pretty quickly if people are connecting to the characters. Mm. And with film, you don't know until you're done. And there's so many other factors into play. I've directed feature films and feature plays. And I definitely can say, even though I love film directing, I can definitely say the process with theater directing is way less stressful. Oh, man. Hmm, interesting. Well, I, I could buy that 100%. Yeah. I mean, when you're on set, it's like you have to be ready to go with everything Every or else the production's going to suffer and then people are going to start getting annoyed and all this and all that. But... In theater, it's kind of all done, like, beforehand, yeah? Right. And it's all with the actors. I mean, right. it's the actors, you're just ma- helping them rehearse and get better at their parts. When you're doing a film, it's particularly on the indie level. I'm sure on the big blockbuster level it changes. But on the indie level, you are doing the catering. You're doing the lighting. You're helping carry in the stuff. So you're gripped now. Yeah. Maybe you're even doing some audio in some scenes. Mm-hmm. You, It's... On any level, you got a crew of like 10 to 20, like on the micro budget level. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on a blockbuster level, you could be that director who's like, oh, I just show up and, and like yeah. sit down, which will feel, if I ever, if I'm <laughs> God willing, if I'm ever lucky enough to get to that point where I just come in and tell the actors and the, the camera people what to do, I would be so, so happy. Now, that being said, the film director's pre production is front loaded. They have to do so oh, much yeah. in the pre-production. Oh yeah, it's, and it's like production. Oh, right, right. Well, that's the thing is, is you got that post-production element, and I, I feel like, in terms with like with with, with theater, um, kind of like not coaxing, but like you know, like kind of impressing upon the actors, like you know, like getting them in the right headspace and, and you know, understanding the characters themselves. That's almost like, uh, again, I can't speak for Stephen, but from a directing standpoint, I feel like. Um, that's almost what I'm like striving for. Like I want to be able to just kind of like, you know, uh, Im- impress the vision for the story, which is where you know they say story is king and story is everything. Um, uh, that that's like almost what I'm looking for in 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 film. Right. But but as like you just mentioned, I mean, there's so many other different stops that you've got to be able to pull off, uh, whether it's before the fact or after the fact or whatever, just kind of make this happen. Um, and that's not to say that anyone is uh, less. Um, Taxing, yeah, taxing, or, or, or you know that, that there's there's much thought behind it, but um, I think that you've probably found a really like uh, uh, beautiful blend between the two, where you're able to um, flex the same muscles, right, right. And, and and be working similar things, and, and and you've kind of found that like medium between, um, you know, I want to be a film director and I want to be a stage director, um, and just uh, I don't know, I, I guess being able to. Uh, 
play to your strengths, right? And, yeah, and it's working <laughs> very so, well. So far, it's working. So far, it's working. <laughs> it wasn't always like when I did. I directed a feature film called My Friend Vile, which was written by Michael Montgomery, hmm. very talented writer, and. Uh, we read his script and we're like, this is pretty much all apartment buildings, kitchens, mm. one scene in like a restaurant. This is very easy to shoot. Mm-hmm. So it was my first time directing a feature of that magnitude, of that kind of budget. We put all of our money in it. It was a $10,000 film. Almost all the money came wow. from out of pocket. And I didn't do a great job. It the movie came out okay. It came out well. It actually closed out the North Hollywood uh, Cinefest, which mm. was great. So um, we spent, our, we took our time, and we made sure the sound and the audio and the performances were strong. It's not an embarrassing movie by any means. I'm not embarrassed of it. I would tell people to watch it. But I knew I could have done better as a director. It was really the producing that kept the movie afloat. And I think there was a lot of insecurity on my part on how do I make this good. And I, I had a fatal flaw when I was doing the movie that I had to get over about halfway through the production. And that was I wanted I wanted my cast and crew to like me, mm. which is you can't. Kind of going back to like when you're a writer and you can't worry about if people like your work or not. Mm. As a director, you cannot worry about making friends on set. That's not to say be a jerk or be mean or be, particularly when people are working for little money. You have to keep them motivated, encourage them, right. and be supportive. Right, don't go out of your way to be, you know, punching right. down or anything. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but I was, um, I just cared too much if they liked me or not. Mm. And that was a very hard lesson for me to learn. And I got to the point where I realized, you know, screw if they like me or not. I don't care if any of these people are my friends. Obviously, with the exception of, like, Ravi, who was an actor in the movie and was also my producing partner. At the end of it, I was like, I don't care if any of these people like me after this. What I do care about is that this movie is something that they're not embarrassed of five years down the line. That this can be on their IMDb Mm -hmm. profile page, and they'll be like, yeah, this was something I was in, and it came out okay, and it was a cool indie film, and I did it, and blah, blah, blah. So how how did that manifest itself? as far as just like maybe some like trepidation trying to be like too polite on set or what what was it exactly about like trying to <laughs> I think I was like I you? was too polite sometimes and I also think I was too unsure I would I would second guess myself mm, and people yeah. don't like that yeah, actors will yeah. throw a lot of questions at you and a lot of like well what about this what about this but typically unless they really are concerned about something typically they want you to say it's going to be okay and I know what I'm doing Actors are, not all of them, and I don't want this like come back to, this quote to come back to haunt me. But actors, by and large, like all artists, are very insecure people that need constant validation. Mm-hmm. Sure. And yeah. I didn't quite understand that. I'm the kind of person I don't do well in dating relationships because when a woman texts me and I text her back and the conversation is over, I feel no need to <laughs> continue the conversation. Right, that's that. <laughs> that's that. Settled. We've we settled are. It. Yeah. It, everything's settled. And I get it's how you often feel. This, I know how I feel. Right. Exactly. You <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. people always ask like, "Well, oh Matt, why are you single?" I'm like, "Well, I'm, I'm mostly distant in five seven. <laughs> and you know, but it's the same thing with directing. You kind of have to be that way. You kind of mm. you have to be just caring enough. That they know that you care. Yes. I have multiple times on set been called, like, oh, you're like our dad, you know, since I've, like, started to find my footing as a director. Yeah, yeah. And this is cool. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with being the loving but firm daddy. Dad. Cool. I don't know about <laughs> daddy, that. Daddy. That might be a little. That might be a well, little. <laughs> well, you you have to be though. I mean, I feel like that's that's 
as funny as it is, that's kind of a good way to put it. It's like you've got to be caring about all these people, but you've got to make sure they're in line, too, and you've got to show up and do your job. Right, exactly. That's because an interesting, that's what they care about the most. Yeah, yeah. It's a really interesting, like, uh, uh, allusion to the uh, the father figure. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> like that, that's the Or mother figure, man. you know. Well, or, of course, of course. Or, non, or non-gendered parent. Yes. Right, right. And he, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yes. The, the parent, the parent. Yeah, you know, it, but it's true. It's true. It's uh I had to learn that tough lesson. It was very, very difficult for me to learn. And I took a year off directing after I did My Friend Violet because I was like, maybe I'm not meant to be a director. Mm. And I'm totally okay with that if I'm not meant to be a director. Mm. I took a year off. I, w- I rewatched everything I had directed that I could find on film. I took notes and I was like, if I found a scene where I could have done something better, I made a note of it. Mm. Like, I could have done this better. And then I read it all back to myself and I threw all of it away. And I got to that point with myself where I said, okay, and that's when I did Politically Challenged. Mm. And Politically Challenged, I did a, a short called Church Steeple, which was just kind of a one-day, five-hour shoot, which was a comedy I did for my friend's sketch comedy show, Q11. And then I did then I did a, a, a feature play called Politically Challenged. Mm-hmm. And I told myself, if I can't make these good, I, I have no business directing and I should stick to writing and producing because I know I'm good at that but I don't know if I'm good at directing and thankfully I got good reviews and people responded well to it and I got good performances out of my actors but that was a moment I had to be honest with myself because there's a lot of people who hold on to being a director or a writer and they shouldn't be and there's nothing wrong with that you know do what you're good at there are some cinematographers that want to be directors very mm. very badly and they're not meant to be directors. And there's a lot of directors and actors or actor directors who want to be directors or vice versa. And it's like, you should only do one of the two, you know, maybe you're just a better actor. Maybe you're just a better director. Hey, that's okay. Most people can't do any of it. So just focus on what you're good at. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, but thankfully I've gotten to the point now where I'm very confident with my directing and I went from someone who had no idea what he was doing directing to do directing short plays like Ethel party and um, Some Cheap Motel. Some Cheap Motel, which was a short play I directed for Ink Fest, and that won Best Two-Hander, and it also won Best Actor, and that made me feel good as a director. Yeah, definitely. But it was a long journey to get to that. I, I, shot, I shot My Friend Violet in 2015, and I think it was finished editing in 2015. Hmm. And so it took me about five years to get to the point where I could kind of sit back and say, I am a good director Mm. and maybe I'm not the best. There's always going to be someone better Mm. than me, but I'm confident now that if I'm, if I'm handed a project for the most part, unless it's completely out of my wheelhouse, I can do it and it'll be good and people will be satisfied with the product. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, personally, I only have experienced directing something I've written. What, what is it like to, take on someone else's writing uh, and try to like do justice to the work that they've are they've already done i love it and i hate it all at the same time i love it because i don't have to worry about i'm not i'm not i'm never precious about my own writing in and of itself i had one of my plays directed by robbie Davillas this year olivia wilde is not about the apocalypse and that was interesting to see happen but i wasn't very precious about any of my words. There's like a few lines. It's like, don't change this line. But everything else, I was like, you know, do what feels best. I was confident in my writing that it was funny enough that the lines were not going to be changed. I've directed 
I've directed two plays that I did not write, and I've directed one feature film and several short films that I did not write. It's there's a there is a freedom to it because you're not emotionally attached to the script. Mm. You can make decisions that you feel will make the movie better, and as long as it's not spitting in the face of the writer, you're totally free to do, and you won't have any guilt about. The frustrating part about it is sometimes you run into a line or a moment that you really can't change, but you kind of want to, or maybe you get to the message of the of the the um, story. And now, because you spent more time with the actors and the characters and you've been more on this journey shooting this movie or the, doing this play, you now feel like the ending doesn't work. Hmm. And there's nothing you can do about it. You have to service what the vision of the writer was. And that's never happened to an extreme degree. I've always, in a general sense, agreed with the projects I've taken on, like what they were trying to say or what they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. There's been some disagreements. But for the most part, it's good. And every writer that I've directed their work, I would love to direct their writing again. It, they've all been fantastic. But I, most recently, I directed uh, Brittany Roberts' Some Cheap Motel. And Brittany is, she's very, she knows what she wants. And she's very, she has a whole world built around the piece that I did. Mm-hmm. And so I had to navigate that relationship with her because I had to be respectful to her work but I also had to be respectful to what I wanted to do as a director because I was going to take a lot of the blame if things didn't line up. So I, t- I told her one time we were, having, we were kind of talking about it during the audition process. And I said, hey, look, you know, if you want to do this, if you want to do that, like, I totally get it. But that but it's going to become a certain point where I'm going to like ask, like, do you just want to direct this project? Yeah. And this was just me kind of saying, like, hey, look. I'm going to listen to what you want to say. I'm going to do what you want to say. If you tell me there's something I cannot change under any circumstances, I'm going to honor and respect that. Everything else is up for grabs. Yeah. At and the end of the day, yeah. you're the one directing it. Right. It's like right. if you are so married to it, then you should just direct it. Right. You know? And, and so you're saying you have to trust me yeah. that I'm going to make this good. And it was good. We got a standing ovation. You know, we won awards. And she was very happy. And I, that made me, It was. I was so proud and I was so happy for her because I believed in her script and I believed in her story and I believed in her. And I was glad that she believed in me. And yeah. that was something that I, as a director and a writer, I had to find myself. When I did my From Violet, a lot, a lot of my actors, until near the end of the production, I could tell that they were unsure of me, which is fine. I think anytime you work with a new actor, unless, you have, like, unless your reputation precedes you, yeah. <laughs> they're like... This is this guy, this gal yeah. know what they're doing, right. you know, and uh, am I, have I just made a big mistake? And it's about you getting them to trust you and them trust and you trusting them to make changes, to make mistakes, particularly in theater where every night they go up there, something could happen. I had a show recently. I did not direct a show, but I was a producer and heavily involved. And one of the characters forgot to bring out a prop. Hmm. But they're such good actors. They're so funny that they made it work. Right. And you just you have to get to that point where they trust you and you trust them, and that's all that really matters. Mm-hmm. And so I was super super happy with that. And I think if you can get to that mutual relationship, everything's going to turn out better. Sure. Yeah. Well, I guess a, a lot of anything that's behind, whether it's directing or even just being a part of any sort of like creative project. It, 
the bulk of it is like relationship building and just kind of having that trust in each other and knowing that, you know, whether it's, okay, this person's going to show up and do their job well, or this person is going to show up and bring it and take the notes that I've given them or, you know, whatever it's going to be. A lot of it falls back on that, a sense of trust. Right. Um, And so I, I guess kind of like, uh, going along with that, like, is there any, does, does that drive like, uh, your, uh, creative vision or does that drive like your, your mission, if you will, like in, in being a creator, like kind of like fostering those relationships, whether it's with viewers or whether it's with, uh, other, other creatives that are involved in different projects. Um, do you see that kind of playing into like how you, uh, approach creating things like, like, like kind of fostering those relationships and kind of like making meaningful, you know, little, little, little pockets for people to kind of like, you know, to, to be a part of whether, again, whether as a viewer or as like a a participant. Oh, 100%. Definitely. Mm. I love the relationship I can build with an audience of my cast and crew. I have made a lot of historical fiction plays and they were done because I wanted people to know about this moment in history and understand the context of it, Mm. lesser known history. Mm. And even when it's not, uh, historical or true story. I love that relationship with people where I can tell them something and let them see something from a different perspective and they come, not necessarily changed, hmm. but at least considering or pondering something from a different perspective or maybe even affirming what they believe. Mm-hmm. So I love that. And some of my closest friends now are people I've worked with on projects mm-hmm. and I think you, you there's an intimacy and a trust that is so deep when you do something like this that's very hard to break mm-hmm. and I love them for it it's I don't know there's something magical about it not to get too uh, kooky or mushy but there is something magical about it that the, there's a power to it um, there is one of my best examples I can think of, I was doing the, the play Mary's Medicine with Amy Argyle, who's a tremendous actor who deserves to be so much more well-known than she is. You've, you have probably seen her in a commercial or a TV show somewhere and had no <laughs> idea you were watching her. And this we'll was put a, her link in the bio. Too. Right, put her link in the bio. Yes. Too. And she was, this was the first time she was the lead in the play. And we got to the final performance of the regular run of Mary's Medicine at Hollywood Fringe. And she does her big monologue at the end. And she starts crying. And at the moment, I knew that those tears were not acting tears. I knew they were Mm. real tears because we had done it. We had made it. We had spent Mm. hours working over some of these monologues and these moments and these scenes. And when she got to that moment and she started crying, I started crying. I was Mm. in the tech booth. And I started crying because I knew that we had done it and Mm. that we had made something that was beautiful and well told and that she was proud of. And that's what I, I mean, that's what I, that, that's what drives me. Yes, I want to tell my stories and I want to do that. But as a director, I want the actors and the cinematographer and the set designer, I want them to be so proud mm-hmm. to be a part of this film and this project. And I want them to look at me as not as a person who made it happen, but as a person who helped facilitate it yes. and brought it and yeah. trusted them to bring the grand vision to life. Mm-hmm. And it, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful moment. It's a beautiful feeling. And you don't get it every time. Yeah. So that's right. why when it happens, it's like, you're like, ah, yes. Oh, it's like serendipity. It's like ev- everything worked. 
you know, everything came together somehow. And it comes down to those relationships and stuff. Yeah. It's like if those aren't aren't, aren't working if, and those aren't driving, it's going to have an effect on the final product. I mean, whether you know, it's 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 all uh, it's all serving the same, uh, I guess, the same vision, and 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 that works into you know the the vibe on set and how you interact with people and yeah. um, your approach as a director and all. Yeah, when I feel like when a director has too much of his ego involved, yeah. like it permeates to the rest of of the people involved. Without it's like is this person just, you know, right. yanking it for themselves right now? Like yeah. <laughs> you want to feel like you're you're part of something that like is bigger than just like one person's vision. Yeah, definitely. I think it's collab I mean, film and theater is collaborative. You have to work. It's it's not painting a it's not painting the picture. That's also great art, but it's not usually very collaborative. Mm-hmm. This is something where everyone has to come together to make it work. And I agree. I understand that there's some directors. And I think some actors are thrown off by this at first. I'm not a taskmaster. I don't yell at my actors. Mm-hmm. I don't usually get upset or anything of that nature. I think one of my actors will probably tell you, like, one time I got upset. I, I can think of, like, I can count on definitely one hand the amount of times I've been noticeably upset on set. Mm. And I don't don't know. There's something. I don't think there's anything to be gained by that. Mm -hmm. I can get the same results by being nice that I can when I'm being mean or something, or other directors are being mean. And so it's just not me. It's not in my DNA. And it's um, it's it's something that I'm like trying my best to. Whoa! Like, there was, was just a, was a spider. spider. That, Where did that go? Oh my right. gosh! It's worth. It's worth. It, that was a giant spider. Holy crap! We are outdoors in the. Oh my uh, gosh! In the Calabasas backyard. That was a Is flick that he gave. I can't tell. Restroom. Uh, you could pee in the bushes back there, or sure inside. I'll just pee in the bushes. No, okay, yeah, 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 just good. Just pee in the bushes. All right, here um, is. The official pee break, ladies and gentlemen, sponsored by Peers and Beers Spider Watch, sponsored by Lagunas Lagunitas IPA. Uh, I am more concerned. That was a giant spider. I didn't so see it until it was large, right yeah. in front of my face. Good old Uncle Stephen gave it a real good backhand into Uncle the Stephen bushes. Uncle Stephen gave it a backhander, but I can't tell where. It I went. think it's. I, I think we're good. I sure hope it went into the bushes because if it didn't. I am certainly doomed. That okay. was a big spider. Well, you know, while I have the floor, I have a bunch of stuff. You have the floor? I Well, you know, he's, <laughs> he's peeing. He's all right, peeing. all right. I'll give you the floor. I have a bunch of stuff that I want to plug. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah? Have you guys ever seen Shaoling Showdown? I ha- What is that? Oh, man. It rings a bell. It was on Kids WB way back in the day. Yeah, yeah. Well, why does that ring a bell? Shaoling Showdown. Tell me about it. Well, the main character was named Omi. Omi? And he had a... A circular uh, cheese head looking thing. Circular and cheese head? Yeah, so. Oh, the cheese wheel. No. Uh, you're Not twi- quite wheel? Yeah, it was wheel esque looking. But I mean, you said cheese. Well, it, they, they called them cheese head as an insult. So uh. basically, it was kind of along the lines of Avatar, The Last Airbender, but like yeah. more cartoony. Okay. And uh, more like comedic. More cartoony than Avatar? Well. Oh, like cartoony more, in the sense of like goofy, like Yeah, little, it know. was more like slapstick. Okay, but, okay. But each uh, person had uh, their own domain. Like uh, Omi's was water, 
and Kemiko. She was fire. Oh wait, hey, Matt's back. Okay, cool. That's my well, showdown. Which yeah, we're, is we're a show I really enjoyed. Yeah, hey. it was good. Yeah, he knows. See? I know. I know. It well, was a really good show. I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was like what, what Will Dell voiced the bad guy. Will Dell? Oh, he? Jack Spicer. Jack Spicer. Jack yeah. Spicer. Oh Jack Spicer. Yeah. And then uh, he he was he never understood stuff, so he was like, "You are tripping over cold stones instead of stone cold tripping." Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he he would always mix up uh, slang and whatnot. He was funny. He's funny. That was only. That was a good show. Well, that, like Jackie Chan Adventures was like. It was oh like, yeah. It was like my, Supplemental uh, to yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> I think they they played back to back on Kids WB. I'm, I'm pretty, pretty sure, sure they did. Yeah. Well, while we're on the topic of cartoons, uh. I have something to bring up. Uh, Matt, on July 11th of this year, uh, you made a claim that the classic ABC Disney cartoon, The Weekenders, is one of the most underrated, or uh, rather underappreciated cartoon shows of all time, <laughs> followed shortly after uh, by your alluding to another great ABC Disney cartoon, Pepper Ann. Uh, Matt, just how much is your artistic drive influenced by teenage cartoon shows from the late 90s to early 2000s? Oh. And which is your favorite? Heavily influenced. <laughs> Yo, Pepper yeah. Ann, Recess, Weekender. Oh. I've seen everything. I literally own the box set for the uh, Weekenders oh. on DVD. Underrated, like so, so underrated. So underrated. I, I don't even know. Like I've I, I feel odd. I feel weird Pokemon. bringing it up. Being Pokemon, dude. Yeah. I, I feel we're bringing it up because so many people don't even know about it. Right. And it's like I, I saw this meme the other day. It was like, would you rather eat a piece of pizza from the Weekenders or uh, it wasn't Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It was something else. But I was like. Obviously, the Weekenders. That right. was like that Dri- was the spot. Drippy looking. Pizza. Yeah, oh, it might have been that um, cartoon pizza or maybe Goofy movie. I remember that. Go- oh, that was the one. That was oh, the one. It was Weekenders or Goofy pizza movie. So good. Oh, yeah, the, the one they have in the motel with the waterbeds. Yes. All of them. Oh man. Yes. 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 Cartoon oh, pizza just looks better, man. It does. So good. It is. It's like stringing down. It's you. Know, you got the it's, nice snap to it. It's like it's cartoon like, pizza. Cartoon burgers. Cartoon oh. uh, women. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Well, true. Because the proportions are. That's a whole different podcast. Be, that could be a whole other hour. Yeah, um, no, that's terrible. I'm gonna get letters. You said no. Um, no, I said I said, said, said Steven. It was my fault. Um, no, oh, gosh, they really influenced me. I watched yeah. so many cartoons growing up. Saturday morning was like you know 8 a.m. to noon. I was oh, like watching oh, yeah. all those cartoons, oh, yeah. big time. Captain Disney, Crunch, just Captain Crunch. Yeah, I didn't have Captain Crunch because it cut the roof of my mouth. Oh, oh yes, oh, my yes. parents actually. It hurt so good though. <laughs> True story. My parents did not allow us to have sugary cereal. So Ooh, like, oh, last mini wheats was like the most sugary cereal we okay. could have. I respect that. Only during Easter, after Good Friday, could Ooh. we get sweet cereal. And the every real year, good, yeah. it was like I would either get Frosted Flakes. Mm. My brother would usually get Lucky Charms. Nice. I think one year, I got. Uh, honeycomb or something. Oh, Ooh. honeycomb. Oh, that yeah. smack. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, was it was just else. like, I remember one time I was, I was so excited because I didn't get to have Siri cereal and I was over at my friend's house and we were watching Siri cartoons and we were actually watching, um, we were actually watching Men in Black, the series. There was oh, an animated wow. Men in the Black show. What? actually really good. I got it. And we were up. watching it and I remember I got, I got um, Cookie Crisp. Mm. I always wanted cookie crisp. Oh, cookie crisp, yeah. But it was too much. It was too much sugar. And I, I, my parents, have they trained my body to reject too much sugar. And mm. so now it's like, it was too much. I was like, ooh, I like, had like a sugar headache from eating cookie crisp. Because it's milk and cookies. <laughs> it's literally yeah. milk and cookies. That's literally like that. milk and cookies. For it's breakfast. Like, for breakfast. <laughs> yeah. We're going to make cookies 
into cereal. Right. Well, Oreo O's. You ever have Oreo? Yeah, O's? I had Oreos. They also ridiculous. Also made me sick. Uh, yeah. Oh, waffle yeah. crisp. You ever have waffle? I had waffle. Crisp? You know, funny thing. <laughs> waffle crisp and cinnamon toast crunch did not make me sick. Mm. But mm. for some reason, Oreo O's. And um, it just shouldn't be cereal. Cocoa Puffs would also make me sick. Okay. Cocoa Puffs. Because mm. the, it turned the milk chocolate. Uh, yeah. And oh, it was so just good. too, it was just sugar. You know, they're always like ba- part of a balanced breakfast, but they have like a bran muffin, like a, a whole orange, a yeah, whole well, grapefruit. Sh- what kind of sure, balance sure. is this? <laughs> like, yeah, it's yeah. balanced because, like, yeah, you have to balance it out with everything else. <laughs> I'm like, it's like, it's like having steak, like yeah. a, an, an anvil on one side yeah. and like a million feathers on another. <laughs> right, right. It's like, oh, you know, it's like, which, which, will, which will give you diabetes first? A pound, <laughs> of, a pound of sugar or a pound of feathers? You know, I don't know. I, I don't know. Oh um, anyway, but you know, I uh, Pepperan, oh gosh, I think Pepperan was just so written. It still holds up. Oh, yeah. Recess, Weekenders. Uh, Jackie Chan Adventures, yeah. fantastic. I, I think a lot fantastic. of those Bruce Tim DC animated university shows. St- I'll still watch them. Batman the animated series, Superman the animated oh, series, oh, yeah, with, uh, with, with Mark Hamill as the Joker. <sighs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic, Incredible. fantastic, did, incredible. Did you ever watch um, Batman Beyond? Oh yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Ooh, ooh s- such a such a nice take yeah. on it. I uh, still remember as a kid, like me and my brother being, we got the Batman Beyond. We ended up somehow we ended up with the unrated version of Batman Beyond, ooh. which is where ba- uh, Tim shoots Joker. Oh, uh, in the uh, in the Some censored version, and yeah, in the censored version, ba- uh, Joker slips and accidentally electrocutes himself, which is still very violent. Like, <laughs> pretty violent. It's yeah. still violent. Yeah. I mean, this is a movie that is PG. It's for kids. Yeah. And I mean, Batman was Superman. Batman in particular were always very violent um, kid shows. But, dude, yeah, like Joker, that, that movie's crazy. Return, Batman Return of the Joker and like Batman Beyond is it, so well done. I, to this day, I am haunted by the episode Mad Love, which is the, pretty much the final episode of the Batman the Animated Series. And I think the best one, which, uh, spoiler alert for those who have not seen it. Uh-oh. It's an, this, is, this is a kid show. This is TVY7, which means seven and up. <laughs> There is an episode. I remember I remember where I was. I was over at my friend Brian and Kevin's house in Cincinnati when this episode aired. And it was the last new episode of Batman I ever saw. I, th- I think it is the last episode. Batman, Harley Quinn decides, she gets mad at the Joker, and she decides she's going to kill Batman herself. And Harley Quinn kidnaps the Batman and almost kills him. And Batman only survives because she convinces Harley Quinn to tell the Joker about her plan. So she calls the Joker and brings him to see, like, I'm about to kill Batman. Like, there's no way Batman can escape. He is totally screwed. And the Joker gets so upset Hmm. that she is stealing her gag and going to kill Batman, and he's not going to be the one, that he starts slapping her around and pushes her out a window. She falls into, like, a garbage can. No way. And, like, when you see it as a scene, you think she's dead. Like, you think she's dead, and then, like, she, of course, is not dead. Mm. But, like, Batman fights the Joker. Joker draws blood. He, like, stabs Batman. Like, it's a bloody fight. I mean, it was like, like, Kids of TV was like, this is the last episode, so you can do whatever you want. (laughs) And the Joker (laughs) is, like, pushed down a smokestack, basically. And Harley Quinn is... She's in a full body cast being rolled into, a, uh, like, a mental institution. Oh, and Arkham. she is saying, like, yeah, an Arkham. And she is saying, like, no more jokes, no more net. I'm like, I'm done with the Joker. And then she sees this letter 
when the Joker, like, I'm sorry, Holly, I love you still. And then she, like, goes back and is like, oh, I still love the Joker. Oh, man. Oh, my and God. Like, oh, my God. That was so fucked up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, like, that's a good way to indoctrinate little kids into going into abusive relationships. Yes, right. seriously. I, mean, the, I think the, the, the creators made it cycle. as, like, to show a realistic portrayal of, like, these people get abused and they come back to the abusers. Yeah. I mean, yeah. as a kid, it, it was horrifying. Oh, my God. Oh my horrifying. Horrifying as a kid. But those things influenced me. I, I have a lot of the material that I write. Even my comedy is very dark. Mm. And people tell me, like, you know, in a lot of my stuff, it's, it's like either hollow victories or bittersweet endings or, mm. like, the villain kind of wins. Mm. And... <laughs> people, even Olivia Wilde does not survive the apocalypse that happens. And it's hard for me to do that sometimes, for me to go back on that. And I think it's because I grew up on those shows that were so freaking dark. And, I mean, Pepper Ann, even though it's colorful and bright and everything works out in the end, Pepper Ann is a pretty, not cynical, but definitely... Um, a, di- a little bit more like, you know, the world kind of sucks. Yeah, a little yeah. more morose, a little more gray than most yeah. kids shows. <laughs> well, I, I think like in today's day and age in particular, kind of like on this side of like a, I guess, postmodern society, at least for me and the things that I write, I kind of want to like try to touch base with you know the the morose view right. of of life, and then at the end try to like feed in like a little bit of hope in there too. That's always great. Yeah, I love those kind of movies. Yeah, <laughs> because <stories>. because <laughs> like I feel like people aren't gonna buy like the Leave It to Beavers anymore. No. It's like we're we're far past that. It's like you need to have some like true grit, not necessarily true grit. Right. The film, but it, I mean, it needs it needs to be something like dark enough for people to buy as reality. Because if you look around, not everything's you know right. as uh, sparkly as we might want it to be. No, I agree, and I think that's one of the reasons I've started writing so much theater was because in theater you can have sad endings, you mm. can have more depressing ends film there's a lot of money writing behind it yeah you got to give the audience what they want right and even with the good depressing movies how often do you want to watch a depressing movie like i love 12 years of slave i think it's a masterpiece i have not watched it since i saw it in theaters because Mm. it was so upsetting Mm. you know the same with ava duvernay's uh when they see us oh man uh i've 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 only seen three episodes. That's t- really it's tough rough. to watch. It was rough. I had to like build myself up to watch it. Like I had to like prepare myself, and then it's the it's depressing. I don't know if I want to see it again. It's yeah. a beautiful. I hope it wins some awards. But oh my gosh, was I gutted by the end of it. And so you know, theater though you can do that. Theater yeah. you can do it because every night a new crowd comes right. in. Right. You it's, know, it's it's. Uh, <laughs> It doesn't necessarily need to have, like, this shelf life of something that's going to, you know, be out in the world forever. It's right. like a limited time only right. type of event. I mean, I love movies with depressing or bittersweet endings. I, th- I think Blade Runner 2049 is one of the greatest mm. films ever made. Like, and I-, I saw that movie a few years ago, and I-, I-, I can't stop thinking about it. I probably think about that movie at least once every 
week or so. Okay, that's on the list now. I haven't seen it. Oh, it's great. You know, I mean, obviously, I I think it's you'll get more out of it if you've seen the original Blade Runner before you yeah. see twenty forty nine. You seen that? But um, I don't <gasps> want to tell the audience <gasps> that I'm an ignorant little. <laughs> no, you're not. No, no, I am not a film snob at all. I think everyone takes their own pace. I didn't see Casablanca no. until I was in college. Mm. Well, I just feel like I, I want you to see it as a friend. Uh, you yes. know, it's like I, yes. I want you to have. I seen want it. you to see. Yeah. It. yeah, I want you yeah. to. See yeah. It. Yeah. I think. I mean, I saw. I've seen seven. I had the collector's edition of seven. Oh, I that's love a seven. dark one. And that's, that's a, a dark, dark one. one. But I, uh, I love the way it makes me feel in oh, a way, man. in a weird way. That ending. The is ending is gut wrenching. But yeah, I love the rain and the dirty city. I listen to that whenever I'm writing a dark story. I will put on the se- the seven Trent, soundtrack. Trent Reznor. Yes, it's the the nine inch nails. Nine inch nails. I will any trend Howard Shore did seven, to. yeah, um, soundtrack, and I will I will listen to that. Uh, the most I've ever written in one day. It was raining. I was writing a, a film that I wrote called Death, Sex, and Murder, which we made in college, senior year. It was a feature film, and I had written the first thirty pages, but all and I sent the first thirty pages to my producing partners, who then all had this, all these questions. I was like, I got to just finish the script and send them so they can see where all the breadcrumbs are leaving. And it was raining cats and dogs. I was in Cincinnati. Uh, at my parents' house, and I put on the Seven soundtrack by Howard Shore, and I started writing it. And I wrote sixty pages in one day. I started oh, writing wow. it at like eight o'clock in the morning, wow. and I was done writing it about eight p.m. at night. I came down for dinner. I told my family, I was like, "I'm gonna be writing all day." <laughs> and man, that 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 music, that movie, it just puts me in a headspace that I cannot describe. Yeah. And such a distinctive world. There. It is. Yeah, it's a distinctive world, but. You know, I, I, but you're right. I, I think there is something about those depressing endings that people don't like. And I get it. Sometimes I don't want a depressing ending, particularly sometimes. I know people, when they watch horror, they love to see, like, everyone die. Like, horror is so horrific that, like, I, I'm rooting for them to get out of it, and usually they don't, which is what makes, I think, horror so intense because mm. you have no idea if they're actually going to make it out mm. or not. Like, you know, most action movies, you know, the hero's going to win yeah. and they're going to survive. Um Though, to be fair, I guess now we've gotten to the point now where happier endings can also derail something. I mean, look at Game of Thrones. A lot of people, even though Mm. it has a quote-unquote happier ending than maybe people were expecting, people were not satisfied. So sometimes a sad ending is more satisfying. Yeah, I feel like it's somewhere in between. Somewhere, yeah, somewhere in between, which ends up being neither one, so no one's satisfied. Yeah, but but I think that's, that's just like true to the form of life it's like people want to see things as like black and white but it's always like the truth is always somewhere in that like gray area you know i think i I honestly think the only problem with the game of thrones ending is that it happens so fast i think if that was i think if that was a 12 episode season Mm. everything like eight even like eight episodes where it helped them out. Personally, I was rooting for the Night King to win. I wanted the ending where the Night King just kills pretty much everyone, and Samuel Tarly is the only one who escapes, and he then goes to a different continent. He tries to tell everyone, like, the Nightwalkers are coming, and everyone's like, yeah, shut up, you crazy nut. Like, I wanted the Night King to kill everyone. Arya, all, I wanted them all to die at the Night King's hand. Even my favorite characters. I, wanted to, like, I, I, I thought Game of Thrones should have ended with evil triumphing, because... That's the story it's telling. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, neither happens. Good doesn't triumph and evil doesn't triumph. It just continues. And mm-hmm. I think that's why people had a problem with it. I, I, I think some people are a little too hard on it. Um, but at the same time, I understand. 
but it's like I those it's so hard to write a story with all that stuff going on There's so many threads again I think they would have completed those threads if they had more episodes but mm-hmm. uh, as a writer I sympathize with the problem they're 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 given an impossible task mm-hmm. how do we how do we make an unsatisfying ending that's meant to be unsatisfying satisfying <laughs> yeah it's uh, antithetical well, thank you for giving me the uh, ending to Game of Thrones. Oh, you haven't seen it? No, no, <laughs> no I haven't told you everything. I haven't, man. I haven't told you everything. Thanks a lot. I'm so sorry. It's okay. I Why don't didn't have, you stop me? I don't, I, think, I, I don't have that type of time to watch you all should. You should episodes. put in the description of the episode, like, slight spoilers Spoiler, for Game of yeah. Thrones. And, There's been a handful of spoilers. And oh, Batman yeah. <laughs> the Animated Series. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And did, you didn't spoil Pepper Ann for I anyone. did not. Okay. No, no. Brand. You can't spoil Pepper Ann. Um, you just watch it. So we are running short on time. Yes. But uh, you haven't, uh, we haven't like fully touched on um, Olivia, Olivia Wilde, Wilde does, does not, not survive, survive the, the, apocalypse. the apocalypse, which did fantastic uh, in the Hollywood Fringe, uh, sold out a bunch of shows, rave reviews. Um, yeah, tell us like a, a little bit about that. Yeah, the, the idea came to me in a dream. I had a dream that I had to direct all my friends who weren't actors in a play. And if I didn't do a good job, I was going to be killed. Oh, my And God. when I woke up from that, I can't, the play was the importance of being earnest. Which oh, is also the importance of being earnest. Wow. Yes, by yes. Oscar Wilde. Love it. And so when I woke up, I was like, this has to be a play, right? But I was like, how do I make this a play? So that's when I came up with, I love Olivia Wilde. I think, I think she's super talented. If you haven't seen Booksmart, go see Booksmart. I will not spoil it. I haven't <laughs> seen it, but I really want to. It's yeah. so funny. It's so good. Um, deserved to do much better than it did at the box office. It's crazy. A movie like Booksmart has done like $24 million at the box office. And a movie like Good Boys, which I'm sure it's good, I've not seen it yet, mm. has done, did $21 million in one weekend. Yeah. And I'm like, damn, like good, Booksmart is like an instant classic. Like it's mm. an instant cult classic. Not and necessarily a meritocracy out here, is it? It is not. It is not. And um, but anyway, uh, I, think she, I think she's just a very talented actor who unfortunately right now is known for the for, she's like she is known her better work is her lesser known work yeah yeah uh tron legacy should have been about tron her. i was gonna mention tron i didn't know if that was gonna be like a it's mentioned in the, our play oh good it's mentioned good, in our play. good so i chose olivia wilde because olivia wilde changed her real name is uh this is kind of a spoiler in the play but <laughs> it's not really a spoiler her real name is olivia cockburn Okay. She changed her name to Olivia Wilde for obvious reasons because you can't go into the movie industry with yeah. the last name. Cock- Olivia Cockburn. Cockburn. <laughs> Which was the, the catalyst. I was like, she What's was so uh, she was inspired that? by Oscar Wilde yeah. and I decided that in the future they should worship Olivia Wilde mm. because they think she's a descendant from Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde, Wilde. yeah. <laughs> and so they had to put on the importance of being earnest. And that from there birthed the play. And the play is basically, I'm making fun of the L.A., indie film and theater community and some of the jokes are really harsh but they're told with love hmm. and it's not mean-spirited and people just responded to it very strongly we sold out every performance even our extension show we got great reviews and then we ended up winning best comedy at the hollywood friends which we were totally not expecting i was going to be happy if we were nominated to be honest and we were nominated i was like i'm psyched i did not expect to win I thought there were some bigger productions that were going to totally wipe the floor with us. And somehow we won. And it was a real blessing. I had a great cast. Robbie DeVille directed this piece, and he did a great job. 
but it was a piece that was really personal for me because I'm, this was one of the few things I self-inserted myself into, actually. Even though we actually been talking about stuff I self-inserted myself into, which I don't know what that means. But um, there was this character called Vic, which was a mix between me and a couple other friends I know that are writers. And I basically took all of our worst flaws and traits and put them into this character. And gave them some redeeming qualities as well. And people just, they just really gravitated to the play. I think they just, I think it spoke to them because it was a play that talked about how frustrating it can be to be an artist and mm-hmm. how difficult and how all the odds seem to be stacked against you and how you can work really hard and it not matter in the mm-hmm. end. And so it was a fun play and people really responded better than expected to it. And I got to meet a lot of cool people who came to see my show that was like, wow, this is cool. I got Ed, Ed Harris came to my, Whoa. and his wife Amy uh, wow. came, who's also a very talented actor, came to my show. And it was so weird. It was so bizarre. It was like I was living in a different world. Wow. And, but now I have the problem. I've made this piece, and it was actually a return for comedy. It's funny. I started off doing the Random Joe and sketch comedy, and I got very sick of doing sketch comedy because I had done so much of it. And then I switched to more drama style. Mm. And then people were now like surprised, like, oh my gosh, Matt, you're funny. I had no idea. (laughs) (laughs) So now I'm like, little did you know? (laughs) Right. Little did I know. I didn't know I was funny. Oh, no, them, them, not you. (laughs) No, no, no. I didn't know I was funny. You you were funny. Um, I didn't know. I didn't honestly. I believe it. I believe it. And then so I now have to like, everyone's like, what's next? Mm. And I'm like, oh gosh. And all my next plays and film ideas are dark. Um. Super dark. I'm helping produce a feature, a micro-budget feature film that is a comedy, thankfully, that, that uh, Robbie DeVillis has wrote, written and directed. So that's kind of good. That The next project from the director of Olivia Wilde is mm-hmm. a big comedy. But me, all my plays are not comedies. There's some funny stuff in them, but they're not yeah. comedies. But I'm okay with that. I don't want people... I did the comedy so I didn't get pigeonholed. Yeah. And I'm doing mm-hmm. these dramas because I've been doing a lot of historical dramas that were about lesser-known African-Americans and, or just Africans. And now I'm like, well, I don't want to be known for just doing that. So I've been breaking out of it. Uh, I actually recorded I should send you guys the link to Olivia Wilde so you guys can watch oh, it. Oh, yes. Oh, my... Baby. I would love that. I got to upload it. You weren't able it. to see yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I got to I gotta make sure it's edited and uploaded, too. But once it is, I will I will send it to you. Oh, beautiful. Yes, yes, we yes. Would love, we would love to watch we it. We recorded the extension show because we were we were so crowded on the final show. We, we were, like, overbooked, you know? And so people were, like... We were, like, at maximum fire capacity. Damn. So we were, wow. we were, like... We didn't have a space with the camera. So this, thankfully, this last one we were able to do it, but um, yeah. Anyway, that's a long way of saying it's a piece. It was fun to return to comedy because people didn't know I could do comedy, and it's great that people know I could do comedy. Um, but if anyone's listening to this who's a fan of mine, you should not expect a lot of comedy coming from me. I I'm kind of burned out the comedy genre. I'll definitely be doing more comedies. There's more comedies down the line, yes. But I I had a bad experience doing some comedy and I think it's just something I I stray away from. I did a lot of sketch comedy in college and right after college and the problem I found with sketch comedy is that no one wants to watch Mm. sketch comedy unless Mm. you're Key and Peele or SNL and so I kind of started to resent it because people didn't take me seriously Yeah, Mm -hmm. I felt like and so I was like 
which is stupid because sketch comedy is actually one of the best places. Like I said with the random shows, it's one of the best places to learn how to do filmmaking. But I, I had some experiences with sketch comedy where, not because of the genre itself, but just because of who I was, people like kind of, anytime I tried to do something that was more a little more serious leaning, people were like, well, you're the sketch comedy guy. Be funny. And I, I started to resent that. Yeah. And so I, I started going hard uh, left to that, where mm. I was like... Oh, yeah, watch this. Watch this. <laughs> you know, and the next piece, the two pieces I'm working on, the EMT's Invisible Universe, EMT's especially, is not a comedy. And even though it starts off very funny. And I think... I'm I'm very interested to see how people react to it because I I the last few plays I've made other than Olivia Wilde I've gotten people to like cry and be a little like moved and which I love and EMTs I want I want to break people a little bit I want to make them cry mm. I want to like and I want them to be so grateful whenever I do a comedy. Like, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> a little <laughs> relief. You're making us laugh I can't again. I another one of these traumas. <laughs> Please stop depressing me. Too <laughs> so, dramatic. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know. So, yeah. <laughs> so, what, what can we expect next, then? What, what is the next move for Matt Robinson? Where, where can we get more of Matt Robinson? Uh, you can follow me on Instagram or sure. Twitter at Robinson is Hyde. Nice. H-Y-D-E, <laughs> so you can check up on all my stuff. Nice. I have a play that I'm working on called EMTs, which is about paramedics okay. dealing with the life and death situations. Is that through the Fringe? or? Uh, it will not be in the Fringe. Okay. I, I'm going to figure out where I'm going to do that. If I do it during the Fringe, I'll let people know, but most likely will not be. Okay. And there's also a, a play I'm working on called The Visible Universe, which I want to direct. I'm hoping I can put get done in 2020. That is a science fiction sh- uh, play. Mm. Oh, a science fiction play. Yes, this which I hope to turn into a movie one day. Wow. But, you know, you need millions of dollars to make a movie, and you only need a couple yeah. thousand to make a play. Yeah, so I'm going to yeah. make a play first. And for some reason, people will not watch a 10-minute short, but they'll come to see your hour-and-a-half play. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that's about. I don't. I never understood why, that, why it is that way, but it is. And... I'm also going to be producing a feature comedy called Running Late, which will be written and directed by Robbie DeVilla. So those are the immediate future things. I might be doing something for the play, for the Hollywood Fringe Festival. I'm not sure. So stay tuned for that. Follow me on social media, one of those places, if you want to know more. But Robinson yeah. is Hyde. Robinson is Hyde. Fantastic. Beautiful. Well, Matt, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I hope I didn't talk your guys' ears off. Oh, Absolutely no. not. This in has the, been a fantastic show. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, well, you won't say the best show because maybe some of yeah, the I other... Yeah, I mean, Christine's yeah. show was really We nice. won't say it. I, we won't I, say it. We won't say it. I'm not yeah. going to say it. Nobody's <laughs> winking here. Um, we're not going to say it. But uh, that said, would you uh, pick a key... We have uh, a tradition here. To oh. sing uh, thank you. Thank you. We're you just, just going to harmonize like a barbershop so, quartet. So you, you can pick the first note, and then we'll follow suit. Oh, uh, I guess. Uh, so it'll be like a thank you, but like I whatever guess note give you me want. me a D? No, you. I, no, you pick. You, oh. pick. you pick. I pick. Yeah, yeah so, you so whatever do, you so do, we're going to harmonize. We're going to harmonize. Put the D in Piers and Beers. Thank you. You got it. You got it. You got it. Are you second? you. You, Stephen, and Paul. <laughs> okay, this, he's breaking so hold format. That, right? You can hold it he's up. He's got to so, hold so it so we can you. harmonize. Oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you. All right, not bad. That okay. was that ended up being pretty damn good. Right. I would say so. Not bad. All right. <laughs> and we're done.